again tonight as was the case this morning on the cusp of my trip to Canada, I thought I'd address a text which would help you prepare for my absence. And in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, we see two things. We see God's design for His people, and then we see how we get there, how we achieve or accomplish or arrive at what God has designed for us. So let's jump in first with an examination of God's design for His people. And we see this primarily in verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is what God wants. He wants us to get there, to that point, described in verses 13 and 14. He wants us to experience the unity of the faith. He wants us to attain to the unity of the faith. There is a, a unity which the Christian faith produces. There is a unity which people who are exercising faith in Christ consistently will experience with one another. We know that there is disunity in churches. But it is not because gospel principles are unable to bring about unity. It's because people aren't applying gospel principles to their relationships with one another. There is a unity which is produced by the Christian faith when the Christian faith is practiced properly. See, if you can't get along with people of different Christian denominations, it's not because you're so mature and they're so immature. It's because you have not learned how to practice the unity of the faith. Or perhaps they haven't, or perhaps both. There is a unity with other Christians, which a consistent application of the Christian faith will produce. One of my seminary professors, I, will, I can't even, to be honest, I can't even remember which one it was. I have an idea who I think it was, but I've forgotten him, but I remember his quote. He said, I will not cut myself off from one to whom Christ has bound himself. Just think about that. Doctrine matters. Doctrine is important. Ecclesiology, how we do church, matters. There are actually important issues which Christians may disagree about, and they're not neither here nor there. There is a correct and an incorrect position on spiritual gifts and women in ministry and Calvinism and Arminianism and there, there are important things that Christians may disagree about and they actually have practical consequences. Some things are healthier for people and some things are destructive and detrimental to people and to churches. We're not saying these things don't matter. But look, at the end of the day, if Christ has joined Himself to a, another person, a brother or a sister in Christ... How can you cut yourself off from that person? 
and disown them. If they're on team Jesus, and then you say, I'm not, I'm not throwing in my hat with those guys, then what team are you on? You see, we have to work out what has been taught to us in Scripture that even in Ephesians chapter 2, a couple chapters previous, Christ has reconciled us both, that is Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross. He has brought down the dividing wall of hostility. If even Jews and Gentiles can get along because of Christ Jesus, then, then why can't Baptists get along with Presbyterians or Pentecostals or Wesleyans or even other Baptists? What's with all the infighting? We haven't learned, we haven't attained to the unity which faith produces, or which the faith produces. Christ wants us to experience in reality, qualitatively, what He has won for us at the cross. That there might be a solidarity with other Christians. That there might be, as we read in the beginning of Ephesians 4, an eagerness to maintain that objective unity which Christ has won for us. That we might therefore be humble and gentle and patient. That we might bear with one another in love. How many bodies are there? There is one body. How many spirits are there? There is one spirit. So look, if someone else is part of one body, don't cut yourself off from him. If in that person is the Holy Spirit, then he is your brother. Then she is your sister. And you need to learn how to work out the unity of the faith with that person. Even as you have disagreements. Even as you have discussions with them. This is part of Christ's design that we might experience the unity of the faith. That we might attain to the unity of the faith. We must not be bickering one with another. We must not be bitter and harboring unforgiveness one with another. We must not be petty with one another. Forget between churches. We're talking even about people in this church, CRBC. We have to learn how to attain to the unity that the faith produces here. We have our differences. We have our disagreements. Guess what? I got a surprise for you. We even sin against one another. I bet you didn't know that by now. We have to figure out, nevertheless, how to experience unity with one another. Not the unity of sameness, necessarily, not the unity of uniformity, but the unity that the faith produces, so that even if you sin against me, even if I sin against you, nevertheless, we can be in solidarity with one another. We can get reconciled because of what Christ has done. You can bear with me if I have shortcomings. I can bear with you. If you have shortcomings, because the Scripture says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And He's welcomed each of us in spite of our sins and shortcomings. So we ought to do the same for one another. And this approach fosters unity. We have to learn how to work this out. This is part of Christ's design. We also are to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Who is to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God? 
It is the saints, the body of Christ, in verse 12, who need to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, how can they be saints if they don't know the Son of God? How can they be saints if they don't know Jesus? Obviously, to be a saint, to be a Christian, you have to know Jesus to some extent. So what does this mean? It means that there's more to know. It means that we're talking about degrees. We're talking about depth. We're talking about a closer and a deeper walk with God. We turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul prays that these Ephesian Christians might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. Well, if they're saints, they already know the love of Christ to some extent, don't they? We know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We know that Jesus was not forced to lay down His life. He didn't lay down His life against His will, but He laid it down willingly for His sheep because He loves us. Because He receives sinners to Himself and He eats and drinks with tax collectors, publicans like us. We know that Jesus loves us already, don't we? If we're saints, you have to know that by definition. You've already trusted in Jesus because you believe that He loves you. So what is all this talk of knowing the love of Christ? Again, it's a matter of degree. You may know a little bit of Jesus or you may know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of Christ and His love. Part of God's design for His people is that we would know, not know Jesus just a little bit, but that we would know Jesus a lot. That we would know Jesus really deeply. That we would know Him experientially. That we would feel His love for us. Appreciate His love for us. That our hearts would warm with affection for Christ Jesus when we hear about His shepherding of us. His tender care for His sheep. When we think about this great love with which He loved us, laying down His life for us, greater love has no man than this, and that He laid down His life for His friends. God wants us to know Christ in this sense. God wants us also to know Christ theologically, to think on profound things like the hypostatic union which is that in the person of Christ Jesus there are two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. How? How can this be? He doesn't want us to just say, oh, mystery of mysteries. I don't know. I don't care. I know that He loves me. His design is that we would grow not only in a a heart level, experiential knowledge of Christ, but also in a, a head level knowledge of Christ. As time goes on, we ought to have deepening theology of Christ Jesus as well as deepening affection for Christ Jesus. This is like getting to know somebody 
as a single person in whom you are romantically interested. You can experience feelings for them and experience, experience feelings when you're around them. But part of a deepening relationship is also getting to know facts about them, stuff about them. That's not unromantic. It's both and, not either or. It's not all about the theology or all about the feelings. It's about both. And we ought to be growing in affection for Christ Jesus, even as we're growing in theology. God wants us to know Jesus a lot, to be experts, so to speak, on Jesus. Whatever other subject is worth your study. If you are in one field, you need to study certain things. If you're in another field, you need to study other things. But if you are a Christian, you need to study your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make Christology a main pursuit to know Christ. God also wants us to attain to mature manhood. We talked about this a little bit this morning. Maturity is learning to be able to do the things which you ought to do, even when the external supports and accountability structures are removed. So when you're a child, you have the external support and accountability of parents who insist on certain things and, and give you confines in which you live and operate. When you move away and live on your own for the first time, now is, now is the time when we see how mature you actually are. Whether there is maturity in you to pay your bills on time, to show up to work on time, to eat healthy food, to be responsible and make good decisions, or whether you were utterly dependent and you're still infantile and childish in your thinking and in your self-control and in your discipline. God wants us to attain to mature manhood, verse 13 tells us. And the next few clauses, I, I believe, are just an expansion on that. He wants us to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He wants us to be like Christ Jesus, who did the right thing in every circumstance when there were no external supports for Him. When He was hungry and Satan came, and said, command these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written. When there were no friends who could stay awake with him to encourage him in prayer, what did he do in Gethsemane? We read it earlier tonight. He went and prayed anyway. God wants us to be like Jesus, mature men and women in Christ who are like Him, who do the right thing because it is our food to do the Father's will. Because we recognize that in burnt offerings and sacrifices, God is not pleased. But to do His will. God wants us to be mature like that, that even when the external crutches for our obedience are not there, that we would live the right way. What will that look like? It will look like being no longer children, tossed to and fro by the various waves. Look at this passage. There are a few waves mentioned. Every wind of doctrine. Human cunning. Craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
We're not going to be easily swayed from faithfulness to God, whether by people trying to play tricks on us, whether by people scheming against us to entrap us, whether by false teaching. We're going to know this book and live by this book, whether or not there are external supports around us, whether it's easy to do, whether it's hard to do, whether the people around us are helping us or whether the people around us are hindering us. We will be mature men, mature women, having attained to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is God's design for His people. This is one thing we see in this passage in Ephesians 4. The next thing we see is how we get there. How do we actually attain to this? By what means do we become these kinds of people? This is in verses 11 and 12, and then verses 15 and 16. We read earlier in the preceding verses, in verses 7 through 10, that Christ gave gifts to men. This is the context of this passage. In verse 11 we read, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. And these were all of the gifts that were operative at this time when Paul was writing to the Ephesians. There were apostles. There were prophets. There were evangelists and there were shepherds and teachers. We read back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus left men here on earth who had the authority to teach and to rule in His name. To speak His very words. To rule with the absolute authority of Christ in the churches. I don't have that kind of authority. I don't have that function. I can't say I am speaking to you the words of Christ with the authority of Christ Himself unless I'm reading Scripture to you. But this is what the apostles did. They established the truth. They wrote the inspired epistles. They visited the churches and authoritatively decided things. The prophets were those who, like the apostles, were able to speak the very words of Christ. But you could tell a false prophet from a true prophet by comparing it with the apostles' teaching. So the apostles were like a step up in that they normed the prophets. If a whole bunch of people are claiming to speak the very words of Christ, but there's no objective standard by which to measure contradictory things, how are we to know who the true prophets are? So the apostles are the benchmark. The apostles teach and rule authoritatively in Christ's name. The prophets speak the very words of God, but but we could always go, um, or they could always go in the first century, back to the apostles and say, look, this guy's teaching this. Is this right or not? And if the apostles said, no, it's not, then that guy's a false prophet. So the, the word of God through the prophets was present in every church across the world or the known world at that time where the gospel had been preached as the New Testament was being written. So they had the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't have Galatians. They didn't have... Colossians, they didn't have the book of Revelation, they didn't have 1 Thessalonians, 
They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, so how were they to learn accurately about Christ at this important, crucial stage where Jesus had ascended and the apostles were going to build a church? The prophets spoke the very words of Christ in every church throughout the known world. As the New Testament was being written, this was an interim measure to help establish the church. So the apostles and the prophets then laid the foundation upon which the New Testament church is built. At some point, the apostles all died out and prophecy ceased and there is no one speaking the very words of God here on earth anymore. Even any reasonable charismatic or Pentecostal agrees with that. Otherwise, we have an open canon which means otherwise we have 66 books that have been recorded, but we could just sit down in church any other day and take notes, which are equally as valuable. And most charismatics and Pentecostals, when pressed on that issue, will say, okay, well, at least the prophecies differ. And so what we have now is no longer an apostolic ministry, no longer a prophetic ministry. But evangelism continues, and, and there are those who are particularly gifted with this. Uh, there are shepherds and teachers, and the Greek word apparently might be shepherd teachers, like a hyphenated office, like a pastor teacher. Uh, in any case, leadership gifts. Christ gave leadership gifts to the church. And what does the scripture say? Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Is that what it says? I see a lot of you looking at me and, and not at your Bibles. Go check it and tell me what it says. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. Is that correct? What are you seeing? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Which is, in other words, for the building up of the body of Christ. Leadership gifts are important. They are a part of the body. The body would be missing a part if Christ didn't give leadership gifts. So... In what I'm about to say, don't hear me saying pastors are unimportant, deacons are unimportant, leadership gifts are unimportant. They have their role. Leadership gifts have their role. But look here and see that it is not the leaders of the church who do the ministry. It is the saints who do the ministry. And the leaders equip the saints for the work of ministry. If I've said it before and I'll say it again. If the only ministry that's happening in and through CRBC is the ministry I'm doing, then we're going to be an impotent and ineffective and extremely restricted church in terms of our sphere of influence and our effectiveness over the years. We're going to have an unhealthy church because everybody's going to wait for me to do something about needs in the body and concerns in the body. My job is to do some ministry, yes, but also to equip 
each and every one of you for the work of ministry? Who is to build up the body of Christ? Not me alone. Partly me. I have some role in that. But it's the saints. And the saints is you. The saints isn't people with halos who we read about in the history books. The saints is every believer. Every Christian. The saints are to do the work of ministry. Look down at the bottom here. At verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Remember, that's God's design for the church. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Listen, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So, when will the church be healthy? When each part is working properly. When will the body grow? When each part is working properly. When will we grow up in every way into Him who is the head? When each part is working properly. When we see somebody who is quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down, we don't think there's a healthy person. Well, their head is working fine. One part of their body is working just fine. So, they're healthy. We recognize there's something wrong when each part is not working properly. We go to the doctor when one of the parts of our body is seriously impaired and not working properly. Because we recognize the definition of a healthy body is when each part is working properly. Otherwise, there's something wrong. There's a problem in the body when each part is not working properly. So God's design is for us to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's design is for us to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. How do we get there? Leadership equips And then the saints respond to that equipping by working properly, by doing the work of ministry, by building up the body of Christ. We sang a couple of songs tonight. One is Facing a Task Unfinished, about evangelism about taking the gospel to a lost and to a dying world. I can't be the only one from CRBC trying to reach out to unbelievers. If I am, we're barely going to see anyone saved over time because how are, how are people going to believe in Him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It's just a practical thing. If we're not speaking the gospel to unbelievers, people aren't going to hear. They're not going to believe. I try to speak to people when I have opportunity. I'm not putting it all on you. But don't put it all on me either. We together, we are all facing a task unfinished. And not just CRBC, but every Christian church. We are all facing a task unfinished. 
Imagine if every Christian in the world talked to one person each week about the Lord Jesus and about the gospel. Imagine how much evangelism would be getting done. We know, obviously, that everything is according to the Lord's decree and God has ordained some to eternal life. He has His elect and they will come and so on and so forth. We know that. But just from a human perspective, just think about, wouldn't wouldn't it make more sense that more people would be being saved if that happened? And then we, when we stop and we realize that God uses means, perhaps a means that God is using to save His elect in the next few months is a message like this, whereby we will be fired up to say, this is right. I am facing a task unfinished. We all are. Not just Pastor John. We are all facing a task unfinished. Let's take the gospel into our spheres. And if our church caught a a passion and a fire for evangelism and we went into the highways and byways to compel them to come in to Christ Jesus, the Lord would save His elect through those means. You see, it's not to us to figure out the decrees of God and the internal counsel of God and His plans of who He has elected to save and who He hasn't. It's to us to follow marching orders. Go and make disciples of all nations. Trusting as we do that God will do as He sees fit. So I I put that on you tonight. As I leave, the evangelism of CRBC Barbados doesn't stop. You are facing a task unfinished. And if, if any progress is going to be made in July and August here in Barbados, that's at you. Do the work of the ministry. I am equipping you, I have been equipping you to do the work of the ministry. Now do the work of the ministry. We also sang, I love thy kingdom, Lord. For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend. This is the church. To her my cares and toils be given. Till toils and cares shall end. Part of the ministry that needs to be done is to those outside the church. Calling them to faith in Christ Jesus. But part of the ministry that needs to be done is to those inside the church. There are toils and cares. There are things that call for tears. There are things that call for prayers. Give to the church your toils and cares. Let your tears fall for her. Let your prayers ascend for her. As I said this morning, I intend to be praying for the church still. We live in the 21st century where we're always just a WhatsApp call or a Zoom call away. So I'm not going to be utterly disconnected from you and in that sense I can still do some ministry but largely it's again it's going to be at you the next couple of months to do the work of the ministry especially when people are struggling when people are hurting a phone call only does so much sometimes you need someone to sit with you sometimes you need a hand to hold Sometimes you need to see a facial expression. The love, the care, the concern in someone's face. So let me put that 
on you as well to love Christ's church in my absence. There are two things specifically mentioned in this passage that we ought to be doing. One is speaking the truth in love. And then the other is in verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now, I want to address these things together. When I have conversations with people who might perceive to be too combative, too harsh, too disagreeable, and I speak to them about tone, and I say, I agree with you, what you're saying in substance, but the scripture says, correct your opponents with gentleness. The scripture says, be kind to everyone. You know what verse is quoted to me most often? In defiant response. Telling me that I'm wrong and that they're right. You know what it is? Speaking the truth in love. If you love people, you're going to speak the truth to them. Feelings are not what matters the most. I'm telling them the truth because I love them. I care about them. And if people would listen, they would flourish and they would prosper. So I'm speaking the truth in love. If they're in this church, I press the issue. And I say, yes, but notwithstanding, and we talk further. If they're not, I say, well, I'll leave it with you and God. Thought I would point it out. But let me point out to you here that we are to speak the truth in love and hold the body together. You see that? Look at it. Verse 15. Speaking the truth in love is what the saints are to be doing. Also, the body, it says, is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. You see that? Which means that when you speak the truth in love, you can't be cutting off apart. Or you're disobeying this section of Scripture. If speaking the truth in love severs a finger from the body, you've done something wrong. Because somehow, in the way that we are speaking the truth in love, we're also supposed to be holding the body together. Those two things go together in this section of Scripture. I might simply just point out that it does say speaking the truth in love. But that doesn't seem to suffice for some folks. So let me take a different tack and say, okay... Your intention is love, you're speaking the truth, but the end result is that the body is fragmenting. The body is dividing. The body is not being held together. Are you doing then what Ephesians 4.15 says if Ephesians 4.16 is not happening? The answer, I believe, is no. We need to find a way to speak the truth in love in such a way that we are doing our part in holding the body together. I fully understand that sometimes people take needless offense. I don't suggest that not offending people is the only consideration and the only concern when speaking. Believe it or not, I have offended people over the years myself. 
But we do have to figure out, as we speak the truth in love, how do we be gentle? How do we be kind? How do we hold the body together as we speak the truth in love? So, go and do the evangelism outside the church. Give your toils and cares to the church. Let your tears fall for her. Let your prayers ascend for her. Speak the truth in love while holding the body together. Doing the ministry that God would have you do until, as it says, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. This next two months is an opportunity to step up and rise to this challenge. 